The following is an original audio series from Sierra International Machinery, Pile of Scrap, with your host, John Sacco. All right, so we've heard uh, yesterday and a little bit today um, with the panel about operational costs, costs that uh, everybody who handles any form of recycled material will incur. And I really think it's important to dive a little deeper into this because as an operator, a facility owner ourselves in Bakersfield, California, you know, we try to break down our costs as, you know, as detailed as we can, but Jay here with his company in Alter, I think has taken it to another science. And so let's talk, let's just get started. Let's just start with direct cost. And everybody seems to have a grasp of that, but let's talk about direct cost and how you bucket that at Alter. So, so I think actually, you know, there's been a lot of conversations and some great people up here talking. And as Brett said, you know, every, every time you swing, every time you pick something, it costs you something. So when we talk about costs, you know, in a direct cost versus uh, your fixed cost, you've got some that's sunk money that's there. That's not going to change. It's going to be divided each month by the number of tons you do, and that is just there. The only thing you have control of is your variable operating costs. And those things you put in that bucket and how careful you are about metering everything from your electric and your water and your fuel and your labor and the bobcat for cleaning up and the, the, the loader for pushing up, every bit of that is your direct cost. And a lot of times when you ask somebody, you know, in, in historically, and I, I don't know anything else, scraps all I know, I know absolutely nothing else. So I don't know whether it's gonna help any or confuse the shit out of you, but, or confuse the heck out of you. But it, uh, it comes down to the fact that you can only control that variable aspect. Can you slow down the use of fuel? Can you make as few swings as you can? And those things are fixed into your, into your cost at the machine. And when you ask somebody, what does it cost you to shred? Or what does it cost you to shear? You count the number of people. You count the crane that's directly feeding. You look at that piece of equipment. And, and that becomes the static part of what they say. But yet that whole yard around it, I don't know if you want me to just yeah, keep going because I think this is I think this is what important. When, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people. Here, What's it cost to shear? You know, well, you have your operator, crane operator, and the crane. But yeah, but this is where it gets at. You you still got a yard to maintain. Where are you putting those costs? Where are those going to what buckets? Because how many? Where do you allocate those expenses? Because I think people think they can buy for one price. They got oh, it only cost me fifteen dollars to process scrap. I just yeah, no, it doesn't cost you a lot more. So the other aspect is the balance of the yard is going. If you look at it, it cost me so much to shear, and for those of you who have so much to shred, so much from my non-ferrous, I know my costs. But when you add those costs up and those total dollars at the end of the month, you seem to spend more than that in the yard. So you, you, know, you think well, you know what your shredding costs, you think you know what your, but this, this general bucket, whether that's fences or stormwater or controls in the yard, or your camera servers, or it could be a multitude of things. There is a dollars that cost to run the balance of the facility, sweepers and radiation detectors, you know, everything that ticks around that yard. And you take those dollars and you figure out, here's my operating cost for my shredder, what I believe is my direct. But here's a variable cost bucket that I control that affects every pound and every ton in the yard. And if you look at that, that has a dramatic effect on what your actual real fully absorbed operating cost is. That could be $10 a ton on top of it, that could be $15 a ton. That, you know, that depending on how much you put in the actual bucket. And so we spend a lot of time 
figuring out exactly which people, how much time, is there some allocator? But it's, and it's, it's tedious, it's time consuming, but it's absolutely critical to know what really costs to operate the piece of equipment. You know, you, you touch on something, you know, repair and maintenance. Um, you know, let's say you have a new material handler and you have a new shredder, new baler, new shear. Well, your year one, year two repair and maintenance costs is going to be probably pretty minimal. But when you start pricing out the cost of operation, you better start thinking forward thinking four or five years ahead because that's when you're going to have major wear items. It doesn't matter what machine you own. If you own a shredder, you're going to change your hammers. If you own a shear, you're going to have to reline it. A two-ram baler, you're going to eventually have to reline it. And those are pretty expensive items. And that's going to happen maybe year four, year five. So you're thinking you're in tall cotton, but if you're not putting any of that money, as you were, we were talking at breakfast, how you want to put money away to pay for those expenses as you go down the road. So, so you have known whether if it's a shear, you're going to pull across that and you're going to re, you know, replate the whole thing. You're going to line everything. You're going to reline the inside of the hopper. You're going to do a couple cylinders. You know every five years you're going to spend $250,000 on the shear and say, I have to do this, keep the, everything square, everything neat, everything functioning. But do you just wait and expense that in that year and say my operating cost this year is through the roof and I'm never going to make anything? Or do you say, I know that the operating costs, these are coming. These are predictable items. And when I look at my shearing, if, I'm, if I have an accrual, if I, I run my business that way, or at least if I know, it actually is part of your cost. You may not allocate it every day, but in the back of your mind, if you know every so often this is the project I'm gonna do, I can use the large motors and a shredder as an example. Every 10,000 hours, you pull that motor out whether it needs or not. Before you run into a catastrophic failure, send it out, get it clean, bearing, tuned it, put it back on the shelf, run off the spare, and, and you know you've got five years of uninterrupted maintenance. But do you allocate for that or do you just take that as a hit? So it's all that peripheral information or all those things it takes to run the yard. The SGNA, everybody that's salary, general administrative, you know, that has a cost that the, the, the operation has to cover. So you probably should have a, a good handle on what that is too on a per ton basis. Because in the end, you know, what you see sometimes is folks will say, I know exactly what it costs me to run it. Except at the end of running it, we make a ton of money doing this, we make a ton of money doing this, we make a ton, but in the end we don't make any money. So do you really know what all those variable buckets are? Where they land in your business? Well, exactly. It, it, so we, I did two sessions on uh, maintenance. And you, sh you know, I showed a lot of slides of, of machines that aren't very well taken care of. And, you know, those costs, some operators don't feel, hey, I need to put money towards my daily, monthly maintenance. And it comes back to bite them in the butt because your downtime is going to be more. Another thing that you got to consider is having a few spare parts on your shelves at all time or wear items. It doesn't matter, be it material handling, because you may call for a part and your vendor may have it, but if you've taken notice of how FedEx is no longer overnight anymore and how UPS doesn't deliver overnight, there's always some something happening. You could be down three, four days for a $50 fitting. You know, you're losing a lot of revenue, a lot of profit in three days by waiting for a $50 fitting. So start thinking about the cost you can prevent by having a little bit up front in your warehouse to keep out. What do you carry, did you say, in spare parts at Alter? 
about $40 million. They're prepared. And you know, look, you've got 70 something yards. How many yards you have? Somewhere around 70, I don't lose track. <laughs> yeah, but you don't lose track of that 40 million. <laughs> so a lot of people here in this room, you know, might have just one yard or two yards or three yards, but you know what? Start thinking about what will happen. And I'll tell you what, I've never seen a grapple not blow a hose. I mean, it happens monthly, it seems, at Sierra in our facility. So think about those items um, that you want to have on your shelf. All right. I live in California, and we touched on it earlier on shredders and the environmental issues. I think environmental costs are far greater than what most people are planning for. And stormwater is an example. And if you're not doing anything as far as stormwater goes right now, you're going to get caught. Okay? There are people, we got a letter from a third party NGO, non-government organization, says, well, your stormwater remittance every year, you we're missing X, Y, and Z. Cost us uh, $16,800 for the settlement, plus the attorney fees of $15,000, plus the consultant's fees of $12,000, and we thought we were pretty damn good. You will get caught if you're not doing anything about your stormwater and your runoff. And we get 5.8 inches of rain a year in Bakersfield. Some of you get that in an hour. So what do you do at Alter when it comes to your environmental and putting cost and how you're, you know, how do you view it? So again, I think that's the carrying cost of the yard. That, that's the cost of doing business today. And it doesn't matter if you're a single small yard. I, I grew up, my family still operates a little small yard in Massachusetts, and that was where I was raised and what I know best. And I don't care how, how big or small or how many yards you have, it's housekeeping, it's what are you, how are you maintaining the property. When somebody walks in, what, is it, what do they see? Somebody knows nothing about our industry. Someone once told me, pretend your dentist was coming to visit you at the yard and walk through. And you know, it's kind of a weird concept, but what do people's eyes go to? There's something that's out of place, there's something that looks like a pile of crap. But it, it is the, the, the way you project the yard. Is it neat, is it orderly, is it clean? Do you know where your stormwater runoff is? Um, I think that all of those costs, whether you have a completely capped yard or you have a completely dirt yard, it doesn't matter. It's how you maintain what you have. I think you should always be continuously improving and trying to find ways to better monitor, minimize any, any off-site uh, discharges. And you know, we have to operate in the best interest of the environment that we can because we're always a target. And you don't, we want less on your back. We think all those costs just fall into the carrying costs for the business. So if you think that all happens out of the air, well, my, my shredder doesn't really shouldn't get charged that. You can't run without it. So those costs are all costs borne by the business. They're not direct at the shredder, but they are part of the, the, the overhead that the, those operations have to, have, have to carry. You know, we have an image problem with our industry. Some people want to call us junk dealers. Some of us want to call recycling facilities. That sounds great. Scrap metal. And, and what happens here is, what are you projecting in your community? What are you projecting to the regulator from OSHA, from EPA? Look, this current administration, this is not a political statement, this is reality, funded the EPA a half a trillion dollars. 
you're going to get visited by the EPA or the Department of Toxic Substance Control. It's coming. So what do you project when that regulator walks into your facility? What's it look like? If it looks like a, a mess, a junkyard, get your checkbook out. If they walk in and see an orderly facility, and see, this is part of the cost, what, what Jay's been talking about. What you project, what your cost, you know, get guy out there with a broom. Clean up that oil spill. You know, everybody's gonna have an oil spill. Some hose is gonna break on some machine. Are you cleaning it up right away or are you just leaving it go and then it rains and now you got the stream of oily water heading to your gutter? These are costs that have to go into your operation. And even at Sierra, we spent three quarters of a million dollars on our stormwater for 5.8 inches of rain and I still got dinged, okay? It's, if you haven't had it happen, it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. And how many people at Alter, for instance, in all your yard, how many people you got just doing environmental? You don't have to give me It's that. everyone's responsibilities. That's so, great. I thought that was a good one. Now, and I believe that. I think every guy that walks through that yard ought to be looking, picking up whatever you can, making sure you tell us where we got it. We've got a bunch of professional um, environmental people because we have that luxury because of our scale, we have to. We're constantly chasing battles. We're constantly doing infrastructure improvements. But that's, that's just us. I am telling you, everybody has an obligation to make sure you're keeping, look with a different eye. Walk through your facility and say, what can I do to address it? It doesn't matter, you know the water goes someplace. Take a couple blocks, hang a couple booms. It, it, it's, a, it's a low cost to say, I have a visible, when you walk through, you'll see there's a visible means to stop a feed flow coming out of this yard. Doesn't mean it's gonna be 100% effective, but anybody that sees that stream of water says, There's a, there is a physical solution there. And we have to show that we're doing the best effort we can, no matter where we're at. Not all are the same, there's completely different. We have yards that are completely uh, dirt, we have yards that are majority hard surface. I'm not sure which is the right answer, to be honest with you. Um, but, but I believe that that's, all part of the cost of doing business. I do, John, I'm gonna take one second. Sure. There was a bunch of conversations about all the terrible things that are coming in, in, uh, in the environmental world today and all the regulation. It is coming. There's gonna be environmental pressure. There's always been environmental pressure. And whether it's shredders or shears or your yard or your trucks, you know, that's always gonna be part of our world. And how we respond is, is, is up to us to make the most sense of it, to educate them, to sit down and talk, to bring them in and understand who we are. And that knowledge of what we are, I, I, I do believe that shredders are gonna shred, that shears are not gonna replace shredders. They're an absolutely critical part of our infrastructure and our steel making. And I know we're gonna talk a little bit about that, but uh, I do believe we're here. And I believe that the scrap industry and the professionals will target and find solutions that are acceptable in order to maintain the recycling. We are the recyclers. When everybody wants closed loop recycling, we in this room are the, are the heart of recycling in the United States. So, Brett Eckhart said something today, and, and Jay and I talked about it this morning. We looked at each other when Brett brought it up. A lot of people have these, you know, 50 acres, 20 acres of uh, land in, in rural America. And it, there's a bad habit of saying, uh, yeah, put it over there. 
Yeah, I'll put it over there. Two things are happening. The cost of bringing that material to your processing center, you know, every time you handle it, it's more than $5 now. I think, Brett, $5. No offense, brother, but I think it's $7.50 to $10 now, right? But here's two things that happen. When you've got to bring scrap that's an acre away, bring it to your processing, be it a shredder, be it a shear, be it a baler, logger, whatever the hell it is, it's going to cost you extra money. But here's what you're also doing. You're spreading the potential for the regulator to go test your dirt all the way over there because you might bought in a piece of equipment and it has a little oil tank in it and there's a little hole in it and it's just dripping straight into the ground. And now they're going to come in, they're going to take soil samples 20, 20, at the 20th acre and over here and over here and they're going to say, well, guess what? You're going to have to take out a foot of dirt and now you're facing a half a million dollar, million dollar cleanup. So you call it, what you call it, the sprawl? Scrapyard sprawl. It feeds out to every corner as far as it can find. So you want to pay attention to that because I think that's a cost. It doesn't look like a cost, but it's there. And I, and I, I think, we, you know, space is a great thing because some people operate their yards on postage stamps, and it's amazing what they'll pump out because they have nowhere to put it. You know, put it, they got to... They got a, you know, tons in, tons out, pounds in, pounds out. So they're really working it. But those sprawl can come back and bite you. And um, that's just it's something to keep in mind. You, you, you touched on sweeping. And, you know, of course, if you have a dirt yard, you can't sweep. It's Sierra, we're all paved and all concrete. But because of the stormwater situation, we have to buy, we had to spend a quarter million dollars on a sweeper. We were gonna buy one anyway. We were pricing it out when we got this, this letter from these people. So part of our settlement is we have to sweep our facility, which is fine, a vacuum sweeper. Look, we want to be good neighbors to the, to the people around us. So, you know, that's a cost. Where, where do you put that into? Is that your, does that go to non-ferrous? Does that go to ferrous? Paper, wherever you're processing. So keeping your yard clean. So one thing you'll find out if you have an old paved yard is at the end of the pile, at the bottom of the pile, is all this dirt. You bought all that dirt. Have you figured out what percentage, your shrinkage, we talked on that, Jay. What, do you know what the percentage, what, what do you use for a percentage number? I, you know, I think it all, it's all commodity specific, but the idea is that there's, you, you have to manage that. You know, if you start with flat ground, and you said you can't sweep a dirt yard, I actually don't believe that's true. You may sweep it differently. You sweep it with a magnet, you go over it with a blade, you know, but those roadways have to be maintained because that is your control. You do have to present that control no matter whether it's on a dirt yard or so. So there's a different way to do it. But again, each yard is specific. Each yard has its own, uh, uh, you know, now you know, my new thing, you, I just looking at Brett, I'm going to hire him because, you know, I'm going to give him a 20% margin and I'm going to hire him for six bucks a ton to move my scrap from now on because uh, I think it's $10 every time you touch it today. <laughs> But you know, with hydraulic oil at $15 a gallon and fuel where it is, you know, there is nothing cheap about running a machine. But I think cleanliness is about what the eye sees and about where the customer is going to drive. Um, you know, I, I have three basic, basic parameters, safety, quality, and customer service. Whatever you do, you have to do it safely. Your quality has to be impeccable, as you heard from everyone today, both and yesterday, non-ferrous, ferrous. You know, as markets change, as people build relationships, as you go year after year, quality matters and customer service. 
your customer has to know when they're an issue, that issue is important to you, and you're there for them. And when they walk your yard, they see that you take care of your yard and your facility and your equipment, and the signs are where they belong, and every, all those things that we have to do now to show OSHA's right, it seems like it's a waste of time, but it's a necessary cost of doing business in our industry today. We are manufacturers. We are not scrapyards, we're not junkyards, we're in the manufacturing business. We have incredibly expensive equipment. It requires an infinite amount of maintenance and reinvestment you know, over time. And, and guys, I, I, I'm sitting here talking to you like I, I know something. I grew up in a scrapyard, I never got to go to college. I got here because I spent my time in the yard making sure I didn't make mistakes. And there's no silver bullet that's gonna tell you how to run your business, it's gonna be different. But it's little incremental improvements. You walk through, you see something. You make a little change, and it's a number of little changes, those incremental improvements that continue to make you better, safer, cleaner, more efficient, and faster, which makes you safer in today's environment, both regulatory and from a safety and, and health to our employees. You know, going back, going to safety here for a second, because earlier today on the stage, they were uh, the panel was talking about hiring, and we all know that hiring people is, is very difficult. Well, some of you have customers that require your company to have drug testing. We do, we do oil field demolition. So Chevron, everybody pretty much knows who Chevron is. Well, Chevron demands that Sierra has a ongoing drug testing program, a random test, screening, respirator fitting. We, what it cost us to put a brand new employee in our yard or in the field, it, it, they, we figured it out, it was about $8,500 at a minimum to put an employee, to train them, test them, fit them for all the, the proper PPE. And drug testing, you know, in, in my maintenance seminars that I did today and yesterday, you know, we're dealing with multi-million dollar pieces of equipment, you know, equipment that's worth 800, 900,000, half a million dollars. You know, would you let somebody drive your half a million dollar Ferrari loaded, drunk, stoned? The answer is obviously no. But are you letting them operate your equipment in your yard? What, you know, tell us about what you do, what you've uh, experienced with this. So I, I think it's a, it's a really slippery slope of the world we're in today. As legalization comes state to state, or whether it's medical marijuana provided or legal, fully uh, recreational, you know, what you do in your own time is supposed to be on your own until there's an accident or problem. So you, you, it's alcohol, you can drink all you want you know, at night, and no, there's nothing other than unless you look impaired. And so I think that there's a personal responsibility that people have to take. I think as operators, owners of businesses, we have to protect our people if we have any suspicion. I think it's just gonna be really complicated until the laws actually find out how are you gonna meander through this. I don't, I don't have a good answer. You know, we've, we, we uh, continue to do the best we can to, to prevent any input, you know, any invasion of substance abuse within our team. We do training, we try and make sure we're post-accident, we test everybody. But it's the world we live in has just shifted. So again, we adapt, it's what we do. Um, uh, I wish I could tell you there was a good answer for that, and I think the time is going to be, um, there was a point in time in a previous life where a crane operator steel wheel that reported up through me had gotten bopped on a, on a random test. Well, he was picking up a 60-ton ladle of 
molten metal. And it's like, no, he's not going up there. Union is, he's got a legal medical card. It's like, I don't care. All the guys underneath him are in jeopardy while he's sitting in that crane. I don't care if it's legal or not. I'm not letting him in the crane. And so we're going to go on strike. It's like, go on strike because I'm sucking up for the guys that are underneath that ladle. And I don't care what you do. And as long as you'll be responsible for any accident or anybody that killed, that's one thing. But he's not doing it on my watch. And in the end, we backed down, we made friends, everybody was okay, and he didn't get back in that crane. But that's the responsibility. You gotta know, and you gotta be not afraid to take it head on when you are up against something. Yeah, it's difficult enough to find employees, as um, they were saying on the panel earlier, you know, look, obviously working in a metals recycling facility is not the sexiest thing on earth, uh, but there's tremendously good paying jobs in our industry. And we can attract people, but you know, it's retaining those people. And, you know, in one part of our, our facility in Georgia, um, you know, three out of every 10 people don't pass their uh, screening. They say they can, but they can't. And so it's, it's a challenge. And, and so you gotta, you know, it's back to cost because sometimes you gotta ask yourself, you got a good employee, he's faithful, he wants another dollar an hour. And you don't wanna pay that dollar an hour or $2 an hour, you let him go. Now you gotta replace that guy. What's that gonna cost you? So these are costs that just, you can't put a finger on, on day one, but they will affect your business, they will affect your operation. And, you know, the, these are the things, you know, as somebody was saying earlier on the panel, hey, it's all about the buy, it's all about the buy. If you're buying right, you can make money in this industry. But if you don't know your cost, how do you know what to buy at? So, you know, again, I, I was a lousy student and I didn't, I spent all my time in the yard. I was much happier in a crane or a shear or behind a torch than I was anything else. And, and but as I went through and, and moved through the, the different industry businesses that I worked for, I learned a lot about what makes that tick. And I found out, figured out right off the bat, I'm a bad finance guy but I love having a really sharp finance person by my side. I think it's incredibly important, whether you know it or not, to have somebody you look at, and I had a young man who was by my side, and I'd make some kind of bold statement, and I'd look over and he'd be like, huh? And I would have swore on a stack of Bibles I was right. But you know, he took the time to do the numbers, and it made me a believer in getting someone that can crunch those numbers and say, here's what I think this is, Let's peel back that onion, every little dollar. And let's see at the end, take a month. We've looked at every single dollar we spent. We know what we think we did for tons and for pounds. Where, where is all this extra? We weren't accounting for it. And it, it, it's, it's enlightening to do. It's a tedious um, exercise, but I think it's really important to have a good, solid business partner. And I think someone that has the financial skills to be able to really look at those things and help give you good information on what do the numbers really say versus what my heart and gut tell me. You have a, Jay has a saying, and it, it, a lot of people use it in different variations, but you can't change what you can't measure. So if you're not measuring the cost to whatever it is you're trying to manage, it's gonna to be tough to manage that situation. And I'll ask folks a lot of times, what does it cost? And they'll be like, so-and-so. It's like, show me, send, send, send it to me because I don't want, we started with this and we did this and this, so therefore, there's this odd little bucket of leftover, so we just tossed it in there. That's what I want to know. 
That's the one that you may not understand. You may be able to control. You may be missing an opportunity for. And every bit of it is just knowledge. It just lets you look at your business and your practices and find out something you thought you were doing that was so good really wasn't quite what you thought it was. And, and it's, you've got to pull back your conventional thinking and just take a shot and look at raw data and say, what does this tell me? So I think that, that you know, to, fi to finish up here on this cost thing is, you know, if, if it's on the buy where you make your money and you don't know what it costs you, you just don't know what to buy at. So, you know, these are, I think, valuable lessons. And look, I've known Jay for a lot of years. I mean, your history starting off with a high temp alloy at Sussman Seuss Blumenthal there in Connecticut, Hartford, to your uh, years uh, at Schnitzer, you know, publicly traded company, to now your years at running one of the largest, most successful family businesses here at Alter. This man, this gentleman right here to my left knows what he's talking about and, you know, take that to heart. So one of the things, I want to shift gears out of cost and, and talk about going to image and a narrative in our industry that that's, it's costing us um, from policymaker standpoint. And I don't, I don't use the word, even though in my podcast I got a pile of scrap, I'm just trying to figure out if I change it. I don't use the word scrap because in California the word scrap is a very negative word. I always say recycled iron, recycled copper, recycled aluminum. So Jay's working with me, Sierra, we're producing a, a docu-series called Repurposed. And Jay wanted to be part of it because there was a narrative that he too felt like needs to change. And it's gonna take everybody in our industry to help. Not just, this docu-series might change some minds, but it takes everybody. Jay, tell us a little bit about why you wanted to be involved in this docu-series and how it relates to everybody in this room. So, one, you know, one night over a cocktail and a cigar, we were chatting, and, and we, we've got an image problem, we've got a communication problem. We talk about the enforcement action or the cities coming in, whether it's them from the catalytic converters or air emissions or, you know, stormwater issues or now PFOS coming out. We're constantly going to have them. But what we don't tell, and you hear all this thing about recycling, and you look on and everybody's talking about aluminum cans and, and something. We recycle is such an important, our role, and when it came down through the pandemic, and we all of a sudden became an essential business. And, and it kind of became clear, you know, we've always been essential. The entire steel industry of the United States relies on us for feedstock. The EAFs don't run without scrap. The aluminum foundries don't, don't produce aluminum. We produce copper and stainless. You know, this industry, we are so integral to the infrastructure in this country, Yet we were never recognized because it's what we did. I'm a kid from the junkyard. I grew up in the junkyard, and I realize I'm not allowed to say that. But <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's who I think. But I, I, it's what I do. Get up in the morning, I make scrap. We make big things into little things, and we ship them out, and we and we do it the next day, and we do it every day, and we keep our head down, and we charge ahead. But we haven't told the communities and the regulators and the steel mills and the employment people and the enforcement. You need us way more than you think you do, and here's why. You hear about closed-loop recycling. And when John and I were talking, it's like, well, you know, we, we have like one of the best little closed-loop scenarios in Iowa. We've got a, a scrapyard with a shredder, and 30 minutes away, we got SSAB, massive EAF. It leaves, it goes into the shredder, comes out of the shredder, goes into the truck, goes to the steel mill, goes into the pot, comes out as new steel, all within about 
day or two. Maybe take if they're, if they're really busy, maybe two weeks circle. It's a complete, and then it goes back, it makes heart play, goes back and it makes new balers or new bridges or new everything. It is a complete full cycle, full circle, closed loop recycling system. And it just got us kind of talking and charged up and then. So here, here's something that our industry used to say, you know, the metal, the scrap recycling industry recycles 72 million tons a year. I mean, what the hell does that mean? We were focusing on the inputs. We have to focus now on the outputs. And let me give an example of a policymakers who don't know. These are two true stories. A senator from California a few years ago, um, we were doing a fundraiser for her, and she goes, well, what is made from recycled metal? She had no idea. And we're like, uh, and then we start launching into everything. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, this is not political, this is just what could happen in reality. My congressman from Bakersfield, California is the minority leader. Some of you don't want the Republicans to win, some of you want the Republicans to win. I could care less what you want. But if the Republicans win the House, he becomes the Speaker of the House. And talking to him, he asked me this question. Well, what's the most recycled item in our daily lives? I go, how about the steel on your car? How about the lights in this building that we're in now have 30% recycled copper content? How about every foundation to every highway, hospital, airport, school that has rebar in it comes from 100% recycled iron? Well, I start, it's like pressing a button. I'm just... The bottom line is, guys, we got to start educating these people that without our industry, nothing in this country gets made. I, I'm, I want to interrupt here for one second on something completely different. The young man that's walking out that's been doing the torching, dude, you're my hero. Everybody else is very, he's been standing over that torch for two days, and I don't care who in your yard, those guys behind the torch are working every right day. On, they get my respect, so thanks, dude. So, you know, um, I'm gonna segue in here. Brett, you mic'd up? Andrew, did you get him a mic? Brett, come on up here. You guys uh, know this gentleman right here, Mr. Brett Eckhart. He is a incredible young man who <laughs> is really kicking ass in this industry. Hello, buddy. <laughs> come sit down, come join us up here. So why am I having Brett up here? Brett and I, uh, we go way back. You go back even further with Brett. So I just hired him for $6 a ton, so I don't care what you do from here. <laughs> so Brett, you and Jay known each other for when he was a little guy, when you were with Schnitzer, you tell us that story because it's a good one. Hey, Brett used to come and spend some time with us. We did a big shindig around the drag races and he and his buddies when they were in school would come over and hang out for a weekend and uh, his, his folks and us. We just had so much history and time together and just watching him grow, watch that business become what it is today, it's, uh, it's pretty darn impressive. So, one of the things, these are some great, it's, it's storytelling time, because these are some funny ass stories. Brett, tell us the story about when you uh, didn't please your father and what he did to your car. Give us that rundown, this is a good one. So my dad was a pretty tough guy, but a really good guy. Um, still is. We have probably as good a relationship now as we've ever had, now that we don't have to work together. When you get two bullheaded people in the room, it tends to be a lot of uh, 
arguments and uh, um, conflicting ideas. But growing up, um, I had a, I, I've always had a problem with people telling me what to do. It's just always, it's always stuck in my craw. And even as a kid, so I was a little bit of a troublemaker, I guess you could say. So my dad, growing up, I grew up in the scrapyard. We had a uh, 1986 Pontiac Firebird come in as scrap. And I was like, dude, that's a sweet car. Um, he goes, okay, and I wasn't, I wasn't old enough to drive yet. And he goes, you want that car? And I was like, yeah. He goes, well, then you can fix it up, get it ready. So when you turn 15, you can drive in 15, you can have that car. So I, we set it in the corner, and if I made some money, I could go buy something to kind of get a, get a part here, part there, and get it ready so when I turn 15, I could drive. Well, I, because I was kind of a little asshole, I was getting in trouble. And uh, my dad said, you screw up one more time, I'm going to crush that car. And we had an old, old like, kind of homemade car crusher at the time, and I was like, yeah, man, whatever. Like, it's my car. I, I bought it. And he goes, I don't give a fuck if it's your car or not. Like, we're going to crush the car. And I said, okay. So uh, I screwed up again, got in trouble. I actually got caught smoking pot um, at 14, which was not good. I look, <laughs> and he, got, he took the loader over, got the car, and he said, come on, let me show you something. And I said, all right. I was at the yard one day. He picked the, picked the car up. And meanwhile, I probably had like $1,000 in this car and parts and, and a crap load of time. And he goes, watch this. Took it right over the crusher. He put it in there. And he goes, and we had the old manual style with the handles. You actually had to pull the handles. And he goes, now you pull the handles. I said, pull the handles on my own car? He goes, pull the fucking handles. And I said, okay, sir. I'll, I'll pull the handles. I walked over there. Smashed my own car. <laughs> and it was a sweet car, man. I, one of these days I'm gonna buy me an '86. I'm just gonna roll into like the family reunion. If you were thinking, you would have logged it, and then you'd at least have a coffee table. <laughs> All right, Jay. Here's a story. I was about 15, and your front end loading your grandpa in the yard. You gotta tell us the story. I'm sorry. This is fun. This again is usually a couple of cocktails and a cigar story, but so. Growing up, we did probably 300 cars a day. And it was a little small, the yard is no different now, it's still about seven to nine acres. It was a total mud hole, it's still pretty much a mud hole. But we had one of these Aljohn hydrostatic loaders. And when you're doing 300 cars a day and you're trying to get motors and trannies out of tires off, get them crushed, get them on a trailer, it was like a zoo. And I spent my whole youth you know, inside a loader. So I'm zipping around and I'm stacking the cars and they're six high and I'm running over and I go to back up and I look over my shoulder, and my grandfather, who's in his, at this point, his early 90s, is laying there in the mud with the bushel basket he used to walk up and down the yard with, laying upside down in the mud. And it's like, shit. Sadie, what happened? He stands it up, and he looks at me, and he goes, you ran over me, you little fucker. And it's like, <laughs> so, you know, he didn't speak to me for six months. But he walked that yard every day for my entire youth, and he was there until he was just over 100 years old. And he fell, he killed and broke a hip and died, just over 100 cleaning battery cables in his basement at night. But so, you know, it, uh, that's a hardcore scrap dude right there, man. Didn't speak much English, but he had a mean right hand with a sledgehammer. So the three of us are all grew up in family businesses. And um, Brett, you were saying yesterday, you graduated on a Saturday, you were work on a Monday. 
Uh, I graduated on a Thursday and I got the next week off and started on a Monday, so I didn't want 10 days off. You I got was a what? shit student. I didn't graduate any place. Yeah, but I you, just went to the yard. You were forced labor, child labor. <laughs> I think when you finished pooping your diapers, your dad made you get out in the yard. I didn't know anything else, and it's uh, it served me well, and it's it's uh, been a great ride. So, well, yeah, fun story. So, Brett is also, you know, Brett, you and I, we both have podcasts. Mine's Polish Scrap, yours is Scrap Life. But Brett is, is on the forefront on this journey of changing the image of our industry. Uh, Jay working with me on the repurposed. Brett, what, when did the light bulb, what is it that set you to say, you know what, the message has to get out there about hard work, what we do, and how it's important to our daily lives? I feel, I mean, we live in America. I mean. I wear my American flag hat, my shirt. I don't care what side of the aisle you live on or care about. You, if you live in America, like, you got a chance. Like, you got more opportunities staring, staring you in the face every single day than 80% of the world can even shake a stick at. And it's, just, and it's there for the taking if you just fucking do the work. And so I've, I've just been a big proponent of just do the work. Like, I want to be the guy that stays up the latest and gets up the earliest, whether I'm drinking at the bar or going to work. Like, I want to be the last guy there. When we had the piano bar yesterday, we stayed until the piano stopped playing. Then we went home. And then we got up. And then we went to work. Like, that's the, that's the only way. I don't know any other way. But you've but, taken, you taken to social media yeah. to tell the story, but why is that important to tell the story to you? Because I think that the younger generation needs to hear it, that the world's like in your fingertips. Like, if you just go out and do it. There's never been, people talk a lot of shit about the generation below us, you know, below me, below you guys, and they say, all oh, these guys aren't motivated, they're not, they're not this or they're not that. But I think they just need someone to tell them how lucky they are and tell them what, what, what can actually be accomplished if you just show up and do the work. And, Put in 15, 16 hours a day and, and, and do it, and, and do it for 10 years, not for two months. And I, I think that do it for 80, like Jay has. I mean, whatever that is. I, but you know, I mean, but you didn't get where you got because you were, you were afraid, afraid to put in the work. I mean, it's not about an education. It's about getting the knowledge by putting in the hours. So two things. First, I got where I got because fear of failure and having to go back to my father who's 87 and still going to the yard every day was just the driver behind it. It, it. That was the whole side. So I don't know anything but get in the morning, go to work and hurry up and somebody's chasing you. And if you don't go fast, somebody's biting at your behind. But the, the, I wanted to touch on something when you said about education, about the opportunity. You know, I speak regularly at one of the colleges in St. Louis to, to classes that are graduating for the first in their families to, to get a college degree. And I said, you don't have to get a college degree to do anything you want. I didn't get one. I was, I was fortunate. I was given opportunities, but, but there was nothing. I would chase it down and chase and chase and run. And as, as Brett said, it, it's about being motivated to do something different. But you can do anything in this industry, and you can go anywhere and be anything, and you, can, you just have to have the intellectual curiosity to say, I'm not done digging. I'm going to go a little farther. Show me how the machine runs. Tell me what it can do. 
Think about where I can go. What else can I do here? It's such a great industry for opportunity for future, but we have to tell the story to circle back, whether it's repurpose or the podcast. You know, I'm doing here. I've been ducking both of them for this podcast for I don't know two years, um, but here we are. But the idea is we have to get the message out, local communities to our stores to the kids. Bring them in, teach them that we are the recycler. We are the face of recycling in the United States, and we are critical to the infrastructure, whether you're building a bridge in your neighborhood or fixing roads or pouring a new building. All of that steel, or the majority of it, started from a scrap pile someplace. It started from our hands and our yards somewhere along this really mature, complicated system that we call the U.S. recycling system, and, and we are right in the midst of it. And it's fascinating, and it's fun, and it's educational, and it changes. You look at the great vendors that showed up and the, the program that Jim and, and the folks here put together. Um, you know, it's who we are, and, and I think that story has to get out, and we can get some of that passion in the community. Legislators can fight a lot of things, but you can't fight the truth about what we do in our industry and the incredible importance of what we do every day. You know, I think, um, you know, we got to clean it up a little bit. Um, and don't be afraid, don't hide anymore. You know, Brett, you haven't hid, you know, you're, still, you're out there, you know, how many posts a week you're making, but your yard, you know, processing iron, your hauling business, you're, you know, you're still, the, you're, um, the, the two, what, what, the, the, God, the name's slipping me, what, what part of your pipe business, you know, it's all part of what we do, and we hid for a lot of years in this industry. Ooh, don't say anything. Oh, you know, well, it's coming back to bite us in the ass now. But if we get out there and educate people that it's our industry supplying all the raw materials to make the things in our daily lives, you know, we talked about the hospitals and schools. How about your appliances, the lights in your house? There's so many little items that, that have recycled. How about a hospital room? And you start telling people, educating people that, you know, the stainless in an operating room, all the electronics, all the copper that's needed there, all the tools with the nickel in it, the stain, you know, there's, doesn't happen without our industry. So we have to start telling people about our story. So it goes me back to, you know, you guys are hard workers. You were telling me a story last night, I'm sorry, but you're gonna have to repeat this, about spending the night in the scrapyard because you worked underneath some loader all night? Shit. I'm sorry, Jay. It's gonna come back to haunt you. Okay. You were working. Damn cocktails and cigars again. Um, so my dad, we, we, as I said, tons of cars. We operated a fleet of three-car carriers, and my father was an avid Detroit diesel fan, still is to this day. Believes every motor that isn't screaming, drive it like you're mad at it, put your foot down, hold it there, screaming loud as it can, it's better. If it's puking oil, that's how much happier. So had one die, and you know, when you couldn't do something, and it took me a long time to find out that this was a wrong answer um, until my wife came along. When something was really dangerous or really hard or really bad, it was like, son, this is too dangerous for the guys, you have to do it. And I, I folks, so I just did it. My wife comes along, it's like, do you realize the flawed thinking there? It's not safe for somebody else, but you're one of my disposable children, so you can go do it. So that's where I get my safety bent from, but he left me there, motor blown up, 671 Detroit. He says, look, you don't get to come home. Here's a sandwich. 
put that tick, pull the head, put some pistons in this thing, have it running in the morning because we need to go. We are really busy. You know, call me if you get finished. So it was all going perfectly well, and then I slid under the truck and kicked the jack. And this thing just settled down just enough to lay on top of my chest. Didn't kill me, but now I'm pinned under the truck. So it's like, shit. First, you gotta think about he's gonna come in, he's old school, mean as hell. It's like, and he's gonna be pissed that I'm not done. But I can't reach anything and I'm kinda stuck. So first thing in the morning, the mechanic comes in who's been the, the yard mechanic for a while and he thinks it's funny I'm pinner. So he takes my boots off and is tickling my boots and putting water on my feet. So you know what happens then? And he's like, we're just gonna leave you there until your father gets here. And so, but that was a typical day. But if it wasn't running in the morning, you know, my dad is that old school that, that it's kind of drives this industry. If it's broken, go figure out how to fix it. Well, you can't get parts, make your own. You know, there was numerous times he didn't believe, big stickers all over, do not open no serviceable parts. That doesn't mean you open it and fix it. <laughs> and, and to this day, my guys will tell you that's a common thing. It's like, don't tell me it's broken and you can't find it. Just tell me what you're gonna do to fix it, get around it. There's always a way to get something done, but that is, just one of many cocktail and cigar stories. All right, Brett, you, uh, you love coaching, and uh, I love coaching too. Now, you got two boys. Do you want them to join you in the business, or what do you want from them? I want them if they want to be here. If, if they don't, I don't care. I, I can sell it. I'll sell it off. Call Jay. Hey, I got a few yards. You like buying I think we yards? did that once already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. We've, we've had this conversation before. But uh, no, I, I love. I got two. I got a 12-year-old and I got a nine-year-old boy, and I love them kids to death. I got the best wife ever. I mean, she's the only reason I can even sit here today because she's taking care of the kids and she's a full-time school teacher, teaching. I mean, she's amazing. So. Her and I have had this conversation more than one more than one time, and I've just said, "Hey, I'm not ever going to pressure them to come into the business because I want them to go do what they want to do." I always knew what I was going to do. There was never a doubt in my mind. I knew I was going to go. To, I knew I was going to go play football. Be done. I knew exactly what I was going to do. There was never. It never crossed my mind. I mean, shit. Even at spring break in college, I went to Schnitzer for my spring break and learned more about the scrap business. Like that's what I did. I knew what I was going to do. I hope they find that thing. And if it's scrap, then let's go. But you better be prepared to fucking should be the gate, the guy popping the gate, and you better be prepared to be the guy closing the gate. And that's the only thing I care about. So for me, it was a little different. I always knew I was gonna work for my father because my father, he was an Italian immigrant, and to an Italian man, his sons are gonna be in the business. They're, it's not even, a, you don't have a choice in life. So, all right, so I knew when I went to college, I was going to work for dad. So I did when I graduated. But I was in, we had an agri packaging side of our business, and that's where I was. We had the scrapyard. I, I had no passion for it. And we, we used to sell bagging and ties to the cotton industry. I go, I like that. And so I, would, I was doing pretty good at that. But my dad came to me, in, um, 19, and he was piddling around with these balers. Um, and we, he, his partner said, hey, I want out. So my dad says, hey, why don't we um, sell the agri-packing side of our business and you can go to work and on the equipment side. I go, well, let me give, you, give that some thought. So unbeknownst to me, my dad's negotiating the sell and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm gonna go buy a McDonald's. 
That's what I wanted to do in 1985. So I have my application out there. You're going to go to Hamburger University. So my dad walks in. I had finished the application. I had my deposit check to send in that you had to send in to McDonald's. Sticks his head over the cubicle, looks at me. Here's a guy who didn't go to finish high school, didn't know anything about a university. He has these brochures in his hands. He goes, hey, what'd you take at SC? Marketing? I go, yeah. He goes, well, market these machines. There went my McDonald's dream. It's a true story. So all these years later now, I have two kids. I have one 23 and uh, one 20. He, he goes to Texas Christian, TCU in Fort Worth. And my daughter graduated a year ago in May from USC. So she went to work for Oracle. And this is about a parent. What do you want for your kids? You just want your kids to be happy chase their dreams like you want your kids. And this is a, I want to tell the story because I think it's important to make sure you follow your dreams. If your dream is to be here today, your dream is to be in this industry, God bless you, go for it. So my daughter hated working for Oracle. She just was miserable. And she wanted out. She said, Dad, I want to go to work in the sports industry. My daughter's this pretty little blonde, but the biggest freako football and baseball fan you have ever met. So she did it on her own, and so she got a job with Fox Sports and Highlights. Now, you're not a full-time employee at Fox, but she was happy again, calling me again, texting, Dad, how you doing? I'm like, you know, my daughter's back. Eight weeks later, she got promoted to work at Fox NFL. And last Sunday, we're watching, she's producing the pregame show on Fox NFL, and there I am watching the pregame show, and there's my daughter standing right behind Terry Bradshaw, Kurt Menefee, and Howie Long. And I'm like, and she sent me a text not long after, I go, Dad, I can't believe I'm living my dream. So I think that that's the point here. We all have kids, and you know, you left the family business, but you stayed in the business. And you know, we have a lot of have next generation coming up. If it's their dream to work with your pops or mom, Great. If it's not, I think let them go do what they want to do. Jay? Look, you either got the passion for this business or you don't. And I think that the kids are great now. And, and uh, you got to find what makes you tick. And I love this business. I love the industry. I love the innovation. I love the opportunity. I think it's incredibly essential. You'll find a scrapyard. And what I tell every when we start is, in every town, in every city, everywhere you go, you can pick up the phone book, or now you click online, you used to pick up the phone book, and there's a scrapyard there. And I used to go purposely and go find them all, and it's, it literally is everywhere. Different size, different scale, but you always have that community out there, and I think it's great people. They love to help and connect and work with one another and teach each other, and we learn together, and we're protecting our environment, and we're protecting our the world we live in it and we're generating materials to build on and build the rest of the world around us and I just think it's fascinating to uh, to those that get involved and who who get that hunger and get that that bite of it you can't get it out you, you, you can't shed it and it becomes part of who you are so I, I, I love the business I love everybody being here and uh, thanks well thanks for sponsoring this and you know Jay I share this with you guys what why alter sponsored this show was they wanted
people from the, you know, smaller operators to be able to afford to come to a show, to come see network, see equipment, talk to people, and hear people talk about the industry. He is passionate about the industry, and we really appreciate that. One last question for you, Brett. All right, instead of buying that fancy car, you bought the tire shredder. So one day when you buy two, yeah. I'm that guy. All right, one day you're gonna buy that car. What is that car you're going to buy? Well, one day, come on I'm now. I'm gonna buy a Lamborghini. But I'll be fucking too old to drive it probably. Because <laughs> I'll probably find another piece of equipment that like looks cooler, you know? But someday, you know, someday it'll happen. But I don't even get, I don't even want to buy one because It'll ruin the. It'll ruin it. Like I grew up, Jose Canseco had a Lamborghini. Right? I was a, it's the only reason I was an Oakland A's fan. Like I like Jose Canseco, and uh, so I, he had a cool Lamborghini. I was like, someday I'm gonna buy me one of them Lamborghinis. Like, so, but I just keep buying expensive ass crap equipment. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, both of you, Jay, again, thank you, Alter Trading, and all the Alter people for sponsoring this event. Uh, it's been an amazing event, two days, it's gone by super fast. Brett, thanks for coming up, participating and doing what you do for the industry and the voice and getting you know the message out. And uh, that's it everybody, thank you so much for, for being here, thank you. This has been a Sierra International Machinery original audio series. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast and make sure to subscribe.